Hi everybody and welcome to the Cane Rinse Podcast, Volume 11, Issue 543, Lost Odyssey. Joining me, your host, Carl Moon, in this issue, John Salmon. Hello. Leah Haydu. Hi there. And Tony Atkins. Hello. So, Lost Odyssey, for those unaware, uh, I've described as a quote-unquote traditional JRPG game with some serious heritage built exclusively for the very Western console, Xbox 360. So I've used the word there, heritage, and I think when we go through the, uh, the the team that helped build this game, you'll understand a little more why, uh, why the, the quality is there in terms of the experience and the history. So it was actually a co-developed title between two companies, Mistwalker uh, and Field Plus. Mistwalker is described as an American-Japanese independent studio founded in 2004. Field Plus were established as a dedicated studio uh, to help uh, the game alongside Mistwalker in terms of its development. So let's get on to the, the, the team behind the game then. So the scenario, main story, uh, was Hironobu Sakaguchi. Many of you will have heard of him. If you haven't, he was the man behind many of the Final Fantasy games. Also, unusually for a game, there was a second writer involved in a very separate area of the game that was built on something called A Thousand Years of Dreams, uh, written by Kiyoshi Shigematsu. Um, We will definitely be covering more on that because it is a core element of this, uh, a Japanese writer. The director was not Hironobu Sakaguchi. The director for this game was Daisuke uh, Fugugawa. And a composer that probably some of you have heard of, uh, Nobuo Uematsu, uh, famous for pretty much all the Final Fantasy games, uh, except for 13. Um, and I think the majority of 15, I think, came on as a for the additional content for some of uh, Final Fantasy 15. Uh, did also work on the remake of uh, Final Fantasy 7. Very, very famous composer, and we will talk about the music in this game. This this game released uh, in Japan first uh, at the end of 2007, December 6, 2007 to be precise. Next in Australia on February 8, 2008. North America got it February 12, 2008. And EU, as was often traditional back, uh, even not even as long back uh, as 2008, Got it a lot later on February 29th, a whole two weeks after North America and oh, well, a whole two and a half, nearly three months after the Japanese initial release, uh, February 29th, 2008. So the sales, I don't know whether to gauge these as good or bad. Um, I, I've got a feeling that this is probably not bad, <laughs> even though we, we, you know, we compare them to the sales of... Sort of the modern blockbusters, it was a total of 0.9 million sales, so somewhere between 900,000 and a million. Uh, 0.11 million of those were in Japan, uh, 0.45, the biggest amount, was in North America, the EU was 0.26 million, and uh, 0.08 for the rest of the world, um, ar- around the distribution there. We've got some feedback from Danny Spateri on our Patreon. They said, this is a game that I've always been aware of, but not being a JRPG fan at the time, couldn't distinguish from the raft of competitors on the 360, such as Infinite Undiscovery, The Last Remnant, and Star Ocean. 
Maybe it was just me, but at the time their visual styles all blurred together. Um, let's actually go through our histories of getting to the game then. Um, we'll start with John. So this is one that you've mentioned um, being quite well known and quite ubiquitous among like hardcore 360 fans, certainly at the time. And it's it's something that uh, when it came out in 2008, I wasn't a big fan of JRPGs. I barely ever played anything. I don't think I'd ever finished any at that point. Um, but it was one that you'd, you'd talk to people on like Xbox party chats and stuff, friends and uh you know they might be talking about jrpgs and you're like oh recommendations for jrpgs and uh, lost odyssey was always like absolutely top of the list beyond maybe something like a final fantasy 7 or a chrono trigger it was always so highly talked about by uh, at least a handful of people that i knew so i was always kind of keen on it and it took me quite a long time to get there i think i look at my achievements and i started it up and played part of the first disc but not until like 2014 was when i was first getting in there um and i can't remember exactly why i stopped playing it i think it was probably one of those like i don't really have the time for a massive game at the moment for whatever reason so i kind of put it down but with like strong strong feelings that i have to come back to this at some point um and i presume at that point it was probably on the xbox 360 i think that was before i even had the xbox one so uh, then once i got the xbox one it was back compat and i had a free downloadable copy with the dlc and stuff it was like okay this is just a matter of time put it off put it off put it off um and unfortunately it's taken me until <laughs> the last few months to actually um actually finally play it but you know it's one of those things where it's like sometimes the podcast the you know one of the best things about it is you mm. sort of force yourself to to get into something that you probably wouldn't have had time for otherwise and oh boy have i not really had the time to play a <laughs> 70 hour jrpg over the last couple of months but at least I started early. But anyway, so that's, yeah, like I did the first disc pretty quickly, enjoyed it a lot, and then had a little break while some other things happened. And then I've basically done the entire rest of the game over the course of the the last month. And it's not been um, the most convenient thing. It's certainly, yeah, as I say, everything else going on has kind of made it a little bit tricky. But I have also at the same time, I've kind of really enjoyed the idea of like, I'm just going to go home this evening and I can spend a couple of hours playing this and it'll be pretty interesting. And it might be, you know, the majority of that couple of hours might just be some story and like a few dreams that <laughs> take like 15 minutes to scroll through the text and stuff on each one. It's like, or it could just be like really basic, just battling or something. Well, so, and, and knowing hey, you, John, it's not going to be like a, a speed run through the game. It's going to be see everything, collect everything, get everything. Yeah, yeah. exactly that. <laughs> I, I've done all the side quests and... Uh, I think I'm on track for unlocking all the skills once I skill link the last couple of things with one of the rubbish characters that I didn't really like having in my party. And I've done all of the optional weird dungeons. The only thing that I haven't finished finished is the DLC. Yeah, it's it's been an interesting experience. So, yeah, that's me. Yeah. I bought this game in 2008. I bought the strategy guide in 2008. I put them both on my shelf and I didn't touch them. Um, so I have had, as I mentioned before, a physical copy um, pretty much since the game launched that I never, I, I, I don't know what it was. I don't know what else I was doing at that point. Um, 2008, I guess I would have been working at, I, I might have been working at GameStop already at that point. Um, so yeah, I, I was probably just overwhelmed with a bunch of games that, uh, that I could be playing. Um, and yeah, I 
picked it up for the podcast. I played it uh, a couple of months ago. Uh, I didn't spend quite as much time, it sounds like, uh, as as John did. Um, but yeah, it, it, it took me through a couple of weeks at least. And I played through all of the... Um, all of the side content with the aid of said strategy guide from 2008. Um, I played through all of the uh, side quests, the mainline dungeons, everything. Uh, I pretty much got my characters to the point where they were just tanks and were burning through everything and nothing could hurt them and nothing could give them any kind of status ailment. So that was pretty fun. Um, <laughs> What I will say as kind of a general thing for the game is that most of the time, if I pick up a JRPG, either one of two things is going to happen within the first, I don't know, five, ten hours. Either I'm going to decide that I hate it and I'm going to put it aside and I'm not going to go back to it. That doesn't happen to me very often because I'm a real soft touch for these things. Or I'm going to get to a point where I realize that I'm hooked and I'm just going to kind of keep going with it and and just really kind of start sinking into it. Lost Odyssey was a little bit weird because it didn't do either of those things for me. Um, I did not dislike this game, uh, but I didn't love it quite like I hoped I was going to. So I, I'm kind of hoping that as we talk about it, I get a little bit better handle on my feelings uh, for the game and, and why that turned out to be the case. I suspect it has a lot to do with the fact that I just didn't play it at the time and what what things I have done in the intervening years have just made it so that like I didn't have the nostalgia and I never really had a chance to build a relationship with this game because other things and I'm I'm not I'm not going to spend too much time comparing this to other games but like so many other games in the interim have done so many things better that I mm -hmm. I personally just didn't it, it didn't catch me as much as I hoped it would but that's not to say again definitely not saying that it's a bad game at all I did enjoy it especially when I started to get into all of the um kind of menuing and um just kind of mucking with the systems like final fantasy 8 is my favorite final fantasy because there's so much that you can just kind of tweak in the menus and the systems to kind of break it and you can do that with lost odyssey too it just takes a little bit longer to get you there so i did like that part um but we'll we'll talk about kind of some of the other issues that i have with it and, and things that i liked about it so that's where i am tony yeah, so in slightly different, I, I picked it up on, I'm going by my achievements, I picked it up on day of release, and about a month later, four weeks later, um, I completed it. A uh, save file of around 90 hours, so did all 100% save file, did everything you possibly could, and in the intervening time, I've thought lots about Lost Odyssey, said lots about Lost Odyssey as, you know, being quite an important game for me suggested it maybe be on the show a whole number of times but then step back from that because it's like god do i really want to you know do another 70 hour playthrough of that game i don't know so i've lived a lot in my my thoughts of what lost odyssey was and what lost odyssey is um but over the you know when this show's been coming up i've been dipping backwards you know back into it here and there um jumping between save files you know seeing what's what um, doing a bit more research online, watching a few bits and then spending a bit more of extended playtime kind of from points that I wanted to kind of brush up my memory. So although I haven't got a 70-hour a play under my belt this precise moment, 
seeing a lot of that stuff again has brought back a lot of memories and actually playing through big chunks of it you know what we 14 years down the line um i think i, pr I probably will have a, a good handle of what it was then versus what i think the game kind of feels like now which is you know there has been aspects of time that have caught up on on the game be it through <laughs> some some elements of its the way it tells its story be through some elements the way that it presents its gameplay but if you want my kind of my initial kind of my history of it absolutely you know back in 2007 it was a game that i jumped on from day one was really excited to to have this big you know i was definitely caught up in the hype of it being um you know essentially the the xbox's final fantasy game and i really wanted to see what that what that what that would account to and um yeah certainly at the time it for me it was one of those real kind of landmark moments of wow you know xbox can actually you know microsoft you know you know can splash the cash somewhere and actually bring in some real decent talent and produce you know a game which I, you would never expect to, to be on that platform at that time um but yeah so yeah I, i've got a very I, almost a bit like Leah. i've got kind of a, a weird mixed headspace of what this game actually is but it's almost because it spans across so many years of you know thinking about the game and then you know coming back to the game in a kind of more recent light Yourself, Carl? So, I remember being excited for this to come out, uh, but I did not pick it up at launch. Uh, one of my best friends, um, Catherine, she was working uh, at a game store at the time. And I think I've mentioned a few times on a, a previous episodes how um, she worked at this, this store. And, I, you know, I would I'd go in every so often and I'd get, like, copies of games saved and stuff. But this was actually one that she picked up. And I remember thinking, well, that's interesting because it's at some point in the future, you know, when she's played it, I'll end up, I'll borrow it at some point, and then I'll then I'll play it. And I was in absolutely no rush for it, but I remember she picked it up at, at, at launch. And looking through at my achievements, the very first time I started it was just over a decade ago. In fact, so you're looking at 2012. So I obviously waited four years uh, to borrow this game. And I got about 30 hours, uh, if I remember correctly, it was just north of 30 hours on my game save. Um, and I had basically a, some uh, my power supply on my Xbox uh, died uh, on my Xbox 360. That was a bit of a bust. I ended up picking up a new Xbox 360, but the uh, game save wouldn't go over the cloud. And for some reason, it wouldn't power my old model 360. And I, I just had a real sort of nightmare. So... It was one of those things, that's unfortunate, I've lost my game save, I'll start again at some point in the future. And then it ended up going um, backwards compatible, and I ended up playing on an Xbox One S. Uh, and I remember it's because of the setup I had, I had to have a console that would sit vertical, which meant I could play Xbox One games digitally, but it wasn't great with the discs, but the, the Xbox One S could do it. And I was like, great, now is my time to play Lost Odyssey, and... Uh, I got a bunch of time into it, and then I ended up, obviously, playing a bunch of different games. Um, and I don't think I ever necessarily go back through on the discs, because then it went digital, as we've already mentioned. It became free, and I played it again, and I got about, I think it was eight hours and something into it, and something came up. I probably dropped it to play another game for this podcast. Um, and then I've come back to it again uh, for for the show, which was my recommendation for this, this volume, um, because... I've had 10 years of playing it 
on and off in that period of time. And I remember how excited I was to originally play it. And I remember how excited I was to get back to it 10 years later and see how it stood up after all these hours of playing it and getting, you know, well into disc three, I think, on my first play, into disc two on my second, and you know. And then I finally get through it to this, uh, for, for, for this, where I've, you know, I've played through it uh, digitally, so no discs to ruin, I'll be concerned about this time. And I've actually done it on an Xbox Series console, so actually all my players have been uh, on successive Xbox consoles as well. Um, I can say that it does play and load a little bit nicer on a SSD on the Xbox Series console compared to what it was on the Xbox 360. Um but yeah, that, that was kind of the core reason that it was my recommendation. One, as a way of reassessing a game that I've had a number of hours in over the last decade um, and comparing how I felt it was uh, to, to how I feel it is now and also kind of as a motivator to go, actually, do you know what? Let's, let's actually get this done and, and, and get it off my backlog because two relatively long plays is is enough let's get it done on the third and, and, and clear it out um which is why i pushed for it for this volume uh pure and selfishly uh so i if you didn't like it i'm sorry <laughs> so um but yeah I, yeah for me i just a lot of excitement to actually get back to it and i will say uh, and i will definitely converse um on this over the over this episode um that my opinions on a lot of things have definitely changed good and bad over those 10 years um to quite to sort of the nth degree uh, across that game uh, i think we'll make for some interesting discussion points that weren't originally pre-planned um sort of in advance of discussing this game uh but i think we'll actually make for uh, you know some real strong discussion as we go through so Time for Stein from our uh, Patreon messaged in and said, I have a lot of fond memories for Lost Odyssey, despite never finishing it. The protagonist with amnesia trope has been done to death. But they did something interesting with it here, using short stories to fill in the player character on past deeds and events in the world was a great choice. And the delivery, thanks to the music and visuals, was sometimes quite moving. If I remember rightly, the one about pilgrims walking headfirst into the wind was very touching. But it's been a while since I played it. Also, working the immortality of some of the main characters into the mechanics of the turn-based battles was a nice touch. So there's a lot of things there that that cover a lot of uh, the sort of the upcoming discussion that we'll be having. Um, but I think one of the key points here that we have to start with is sort of the the scenario and the setting of the world itself. So to give some context to this, the descriptor that I actually felt was really, really strong from Wikipedia, describes it as Lost Odyssey is set in a world in which the magic industrial revolution is taking place. Whilst magic energy existed in all living creatures beforehand, it suddenly became far more powerful 30 years before the beginning of the game. Because of this, it has affected society greatly with devices called magic engines, harnessing this power for lighting, automobiles, communications and robots, among other uses. While previously only a select few could wield magic, many magicians gained the ability. However, such progress has also caused two nations to develop new and more powerful weapons of mass destruction, the Kingdom of Gotza and the Republic of Ura, which recently converted from a monarchy. Ura is building a grand staff, a, gi a gigantic magic engine, while the heavily industrialised Gotza actively pursues magic research of their own. 
A third nation, the Free Ocean State of Numara, remains isolated and neutral, though it is falling into disarray due to a general attempting to stage a coup d'etat. Ura, at war with Kent, a nation of beastmen, sends its forces to the Highlands of Wall for a decisive battle at the start of the game. So I don't think that this is, like, a a completely unheard of concept right like there are <laughs> no. there are other jrp i mean obviously the details are not are not something that i feel like they've taken somewhere else but it's not unheard of really in in fiction in general and not even just jrpgs although i i can think of a couple of places where that's probably taken place but you know a a place that has magic energy and we're trying to figure out how to harness it and use it for technological purposes and for the benefit of the people. But oh no, is it actually all for the good of the people or is the, it going to be there's something in there that, that we need, we didn't consider beforehand? That's pro- I mean, that's Final Fantasy VII, right? Like, I mean... Well, that, what, let's what, face it, that's yeah. probably half of JRPGs. And that, that's what know, I mean, yeah. yeah. Like, you, you think of, you think of a, a dozen JRPGs yeah, exactly. and yeah. probably at least half of them are going to have some variety of this. But I do like the way that it, that it kind of uh, couches it and... and draws it into this particular setup i i liked the story and i liked the writing in this a lot um yeah and the 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 stories the the um the thousand years of dreams uh that are scattered throughout i i really liked those as well now i i'm not i'm not 100 percent on the presentation because i feel like this game has some pretty significant pacing problems but the writing <laughs> of them I, I liked I did I did like that a lot. Yeah, and I think I think that mm. that Wikipedia entry as an overarching trope of what the the game world is is yeah, it's fine. Like that's that is fine. That is whatever it is what it is. That is the base of the story. But obviously, there's huge amounts of story that that wrap around that to actually flesh out what the actual world is, why that's happening in the world, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So as a trope of a story, sure, that's been done a thousand times, but it's about what you do with that core of an element and how that and interacts with you know the players within that, that environment. And I think for that from that point of view, I think they do some really interesting stuff beyond the actual kind of base layer of what the story is. Because I think that's a base layer that we've seen like I say in hundreds of other pieces of media and especially in, in in video games and especially in jrpgs you know magic hugely plays a big part in a lot of jrpgs and this be no different and but uh you know i as leah said about the thousand year dreams etc you know there's plenty plenty more meat on the bone than than just that kind of outline of what that story is oh a hundred percent and i think you know if, if you factor in what is a fairly predictable wrapper of a story in terms mm-hmm. of two warring nations, you know, trying to develop um, these machines one before the other. I mean, we can all relate that to like, like the Cold War, right? Like w- whether that's in reality, we've heard this in, you know, countless other games, JRPG or not. I mean, I'm I'm not going to pretend to have the knowledge of JRPGs like someone like Leah, who's way beyond as our resident JRPG expert, um, but definitely, in, a, in even in a range of other games across genres, you're like, oh, well, that's very predictable. And then on top of that, you've got a bunch of characters who their story driving arc is that they actually begin with amnesia. And you're like, oh, my, like, is this the most predictable gaming story trope that we can actually go with? Uh, but what is actually interesting 
Um, aside from, as Lee has already mentioned, there are pacing issues to the story delivery, 100% throughout the story, um, where certain things just kind of lose impetus or value that should have had far more value. Mm-hmm. Um, but actually, the fact that they they sort of reverse drive the story and the history of the characters in in an intriguing manner to develop their arcs that make more sense of the actions um, and the things that are actually happening in the world, I thought was really good. So you start with a wrapper of a story and you actually experience the ability to fill it in. So not so much expand on it, but actually retrofill the story pieces together um, that makes it feel like a more complete world rather than actually that's what you start with, let's build the story on from that. And I thought that was actually quite an interesting way to try and um, flip the storytelling uh, in a way that it says, this is what you've got, and now you're going to understand why. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with that. Um, it's, it's you know, it, I, I don't think that it is always that the idea behind a story, especially in this genre, has to be completely just a unique thing that nobody has ever touched before, because I it's it rarely is. I, there are exceptions yeah. <laughs> to that, of course, but you know, it, a lot of it is going to be very similar. It's how it gets presented and whether you care about the characters that are in this story. And that's where I think that you get some some uniqueness in in how Lost Odyssey does it. Yeah. And I, and I think, you know, mostly the hook is around the immortality of the of the the main set of characters that you come across. I mean, that that is that's more of the hook for the game than anything else. You know, there you've got that overarching blur of a story for sure, but really it's about learning. I know amnesia is such a a, a well done trait, but it, you know, <laughs> yeah. in defense of the game in this, it, it serves a, a fairly decent um, purpose of delivering the kind of the complexities of, of what immortality will bring to somebody in a bite-sized chunk where they're almost rediscovering that stuff in front of the you know in front of the player eyes, and then as the kind of the far larger grander story unfolds, you've got a bit more of a handle about oh what that would actually mean to your your central core of characters rather than just going and guess what these people live forever and this is how they feel about these things. I mean there is plenty of room and we will get to that really about whether they actually deliver on the promise of that initial setup because there's plenty of discussion to be had there. But um, you know, I think yeah, some of the traits that they 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 begin with, I think you know, possibly in this game, are, are allowed. <laughs> I'm also quite uh, pleased that with the um, amnesia trope being such a played out thing, it's kind of refreshing to play a game where they they go with that trope, but they also don't go with the uh, all, uh, like as well worn. Like, oh, and you'll find out that this person actually did something terrible and you thought that they were good, but it's going to come back and make everything different and make you feel different about how it all goes. And it's kind of nice to just have the the amnesia, but not like the amnesia with the like the sort of spit take reveal halfway through as well or like towards the end. So I give him a bit of credit for that. So Kasuga-san from our forum said, Lost Odyssey is a tough one for me. I never played it on the 360, and I honestly couldn't tell you why, because this game checks a lot of boxes for games that I love. Uh, Earlier Final Fantasy-style combat from some of the people that worked on my favourite Square GRPGs, 
I finally picked it up in a gaming lull a few years back and bounced off it after a few hours. I can't quite place what I didn't like about it at the time, but I'm guessing it was tied to the random battles feeling a bit too frequent combined with the battles that could get fairly tedious at times. This is also kind of what I meant by pacing problems, um, mm. I, because I agree with this. There's, I, I mean, random battles, it's, it's a tough line to toe, really, because some games, it feels like do too much with it. Some games feels like do not enough with it. I, I, I didn't really have strong feelings on the frequency of battles one way or another, uh, but I did feel like the pace within battles was kind of sluggish. Um, and by that, I mean that the animations were a little too long. The pauses between yeah. character actions and enemy actions were a little too long. It just felt like it wasn't flowing very well to me. Yeah, I think for me, that was definitely a problem. Yeah, I've, if it gets to the point where my mind starts wandering outside of the events of the game, I'm going to switch off quite quickly. And I don't remember it being a problem the first time I played it, and that might have been because everything was of an equal pace with the yeah. loading times, going between the discs, playing on a 360, compared to everything being relatively zippy um, from a technical perspective, uh, running it on an SSD, to actually you get some of these battles. And not so much my attacks on the enemy because at least you have kind of a ring system which you know we'll talk about a little bit later that at least brings some interactive nature to the battles but some of the enemy attacks on you for example could be so slow and sluggish in terms of the animation and repeated over a number of enemies that i would end up just getting so frustrated and, and i'm like that's enough for tonight i'll play something else so yeah there's definitely i going back to it this time i absolutely see why people would kick off it quite quickly in terms of the battle system, I think, in, in, in terms of how slow it can be. Mm, there's a couple of wrinkles that I think go either way with the battle system as well, and uh, the probably most important one is the idea that uh, I, I never really got that much of a, a full grasp on how this works, but there tends to be um, an element to the game where you just stop levelling up from certain enemies or certain areas once yeah. you get to a, a point. And it tends to go along the line of if you're being like relatively straightforward, just following the story quests, like you will you will generally gain like three levels in each new area that you come to, and then you'll just you barely gain any experience. And that that fluctuates with what levels your characters are. If you come back there with somebody that you picked up more recently and they're like ten levels lower, they'll still gain some. But so it the game I mean, there is another um another sort of type of xp the skill points that you get from battles as well and that always increases so it's it doesn't get to the point where it is it is ever completely useless to to grind i guess and until you get to absolute max level and max skills there's there's potentially always something you're going to get but it is quite a good point for the game to sort of nudge you and say hey you know you're not getting any more xp from this area so you might as well just just run from these battles but then that leads me to the the second point of this, where the way that the game's skill system is set up, you do have an option to to flee from battles, and I think every character just has it as a like an automatic yeah, setting. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But it is it's extremely variable whether or not it will work. I mean, I found to be honest that it just barely ever worked when I tried to use that flee. But your characters then start getting skills that they 
they either have specifically set to them or the immortal characters can learn skills from others. And there's a skill called Turn Tail, which I believe Jansen has either very, very early or or um might even come as, as standard he might, with him. He might come with it. Like yeah. it's the equipment to do it, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. To, so yeah. you can tail shoes. Yeah, so you can turn tail very, very fast, um, you know, very early on in the game, as long as you've got a character who has that skill equipped. And that's pretty much just a guaranteed, you know, you will you will escape from this battle. So you you can kind of game it to to the point where, you know, if you you really are getting fed up with the battles it's very easy to escape from them, and it's quite likely that you're not getting any more XP anyway. So it's kind of um, like your choice whether or not you want to put up with it by a certain point. And I think just to build on to what um, Kasuga-san said in his post as well about the, the pacing, we've already talked about kind of the structure of the story, and I described it as a wrapper. Um, the downside to that is that the time to sort of create the filler for that story is you know it grows exponentially over your experience of playing the game and if it doesn't grasp grasp you straight away as it's a pretty predictable starting point for a game and if that's not gripping and then it takes a long time to get the bits of interest in story you're naturally going to bounce off it in terms of a story pacing delivery as well as the combat so it it <laughs> this felt i think this game came at a very transitional time for what was happening within the genre. Um, you know, we had a lot of new functionality was coming in across the board. We had a shift to the way that even Final Fantasy games were starting to play out in terms of, you know, uh, the, the size and traversal of the world, the way that combat was structured, the way that you might manipulate your party. And this was essentially a more traditional, as, as I said at the start, a more traditional approach to that JRPG that means that, it it almost felt like it fell into the, the old cliched quote when people would talk about in in the sort of the playground, and I remember this when people were talking about some of the older Final Fantasy games. Oh, it gets good after ten hours. Just stick with it, um, and that kind of was my experience going back to it this time. Is oh, actually, I started to enjoy it a lot more after the first ten hours, and I think if it wasn't for the driver of wanting to and having to get this done for the podcast. I very well may have fallen off this a lot quicker than I did on my previous two attempts because of the pacing of the story, because of the certain things that have aged relatively poorly from a structure point. And the fact that really, at a starting point, I was going back to a world and a story that was quite boring to begin with, and I was trying to fill the gaps in my own knowledge for where I got before. So I can absolutely understand why someone could fall off it quite quickly as well. I think I might have actually preferred in places to read the novelization of this game. Yeah. Or maybe watch the HBO miniseries. <laughs> yeah. Um I, I I mean I'm I'm exaggerating a little bit, but uh but yeah, I mean like I, I really do feel like there are there are hooks in this story that are very interesting and, and that I think have a lot to them. It's just that I'm not sure that they are put together in the most engaging way that they might have been. It, what's been really weird about it as well is uh, Sakaguchi. It's, one of the, the things he talks about why Lost Odyssey is the way it is with its turn-based combat, etc. When other developers at that time were moving on to the more real-time combat is because he wanted to focus all his efforts onto the actual world and the storytelling and... You know the tried and trust, trust, tried and tested of what had gone before. He knew that that stuff could just you know 
inhabit and exist and you didn't need to put too much work into that which is kind of funny because i and we are really into story now and like i my my long lasting memories of Lost Odyssey was about the immortality of of characters and the hurt and the pain, as well as the joy and anger that can come from being put in that scenario of living essentially in in this sense for a thousand years. And actually, we all say we want to live forever, but actually seeing a game tackle that subject matter and say yes, living forever sounds great, but actually, if you see the people you love die multiples of times. Is that, you know, better to a love than lost than never to love at all? Or is that actually just seeing loved ones die repeatedly an anguish point? And I, so that, to me, I think that's, that's a really interesting angle to take. Bizarrely, though, going back to this game, <laughs> it makes up about a third of what the game is. The actual kind of political strife of the world makes up the other third. And then the last third, really, that is very back heavy in the game is is more about your traditional bad guy wanting to world domination and, you know, willing to throw everyone else down the drain just to achieve those goals and them having to stop that. But to me, it's like that's. That stuff wasn't interesting. That the interesting stuff was the the idea of immortality. And when it was exploring that, I was always entirely gripped. Slightly less gripped about the world building stuff. And by the time the game finished, which should be the most, you know, powerful part of the game, it was kind of just like, okay, I have seen this time and time again now. And actually a lot of the goodwill that you you built with the characters and the more interesting immortality angle is really running thin by that point it, it it's still mm. there but it's it it's yeah it's it drives itself off a cliff and it so that's it makes me laugh kind of when i hear those quotes from saying that it was more about you know the focusing on on the story elements when actually it felt like there's elements there that it's just are never elaborated enough and actually the thousand year dream stuff is brilliant like that that if they made the game around the actual thousand year dreams and i'm not sure how you'd go about that but there's some really good interesting text to be found there but it is text mm. and it is taking you out of the game it is sitting down and reading and it's it's also skippable so a lot of people wouldn't even have studied the thousand year dream which is more about yeah. kaim's mm. entire existence in life and actually there's some really fascinating stories in there mm. so there's a point here where i think that the the uh, kind of way that they go through the entire game and they're very much wanting to point out to you repeatedly that being immortal is terrible you watch all of your family and friends die repeatedly and you watch massive changes happen to the landscape and all of this awful stuff and it's very sad and constantly sort of living in grief and they get to this point during the final battle where it looks like your five non-immortal character friends who you've been with for some of them for the majority of the game, some of them fairly recent, but it it looks like they're all about to sacrifice themselves in front of you to help defeat the final boss. And then through some sort of bizarre fantasy, JRPG magic, good ending situation, they all manage to survive. And I was thinking watching this cutscene with all of these characters all dying in this ball of light, these children and... Uh, and Who are your grandchildren, with, like, by the yeah, way? <laughs> yeah. You're just letting like, them do this. Cool. Okay. I, I really strongly feel like this is probably a horrible statement, but 
if they had have actually all just gone through with that and all died there and they had have been the ones who'd kind of saved the situation, that would really nail home the point about how much being immortal sucks. And I think that that might have been a, a brave ending to take to kill off the children with the bloody Rugrats voices, but it would have worked quite well for me. Well, this this is the point that I think the game kind of really lost itself and what it was so close to being able to do. Mm. So it builds the characters' histories and backgrounds entirely on the Thousand Years of Dreams and then completely contradicts everything that it's tried to tell you about it into a very strange ending scenario where there's a unnecessary wedding that doesn't make sense <sighs> at all in the story. It's... Which again contradicts the purpose of one person being immortal and the other person not, and then losing that person's uh, life. Oh or the God, fact yeah, that I hadn't even years thought of... about that marriage. Yeah. The implications of that. <laughs> I or have other that... problems with that marriage, but yeah. uh, well, I'm I, sure I we'll talk like, about specific like, characters yeah, a little bit. I don't or like the fact, the fact that, that, that have... his courtesans were there in the crowd cheering him on. <laughs> or the fact that you've got the thousand years of dreams where you hear consistently about. Kaim's acknowledgement of, and as John was saying, mortals giving their lives on the battlefield and Kaim knowing he was going to survive regardless. And in fact, in one of the thousand years of dreams, he is actually on, he's a prisoner on the side that is about to win the war and he makes friends with a guard and the guard tells him as such is that we are actually losing forces in a couple of days, we'll be in the cells and you won't. Please just don't be horrible and he's like a nice guard and then predictably they 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 go and kill him and all the other guards and torture them so Kaim sides with the other force for a hundred years whilst the other side becomes more powerful um, and finally wins back the world uh, again and it can't that kind of really highlighted the fact that all these mortals gave their lives and he was willing to stay there and fight that as an immortal tells the whole story about how sad it is for all these people to die, and that is why the ending that John's described would have been a much stronger ending if the mortals, again, had to sacrifice their lives for the immortals to win in a world that they don't belong in. Um, it's just very... It, just, it felt like a really strange choice to have the strength of the Thousand Years of Dreams and then contradict them all in the ending. The overarching thing as well, which we haven't said, which is if you haven't played this game and you're, you know, and you're not interested to do so, but you want to hear what the story is... There is a a guy called, I think, Gog. Gongora. Yeah, Gong, yeah. Gong, Gongora. Gongora. That is essentially that the the immortals come from a different world, that is tied with the world that uh, the game is set in, and there's some disturbances happening in their world, and they realise it's because of humans' emotions affecting their world. So these these uh, your your main set of characters are sent to the game world to try to understand what is happening. But one year of their life in their original world is a thousand years in the human world or the game's world. Um, so there's a thousand years of investigation. But Gongora realises that they're about to be sent back in, I guess it's 30 years, isn't it? They're going to be dragged back out and sent back home. Um, and he realises that he wants to stay immortal. So he concocts his plan to essentially uh, take the rest of the immortals and disrupt their memories rather than he knows he can't kill them but he will make them have amnesia essentially for for what previous events and for 30 years and as the instability of of both worlds start to happen in 
there's uh, they start to regain their memories and start colliding into each other and creating a force to to then take down Gongora, who's been working his his magic amongst all these different factions and basically altering the the course of humanity in the world to allow him to be basically the, the one ruler and destroy the connection between the two. When you say it out loud, it doesn't half sound like a, yeah, we've... we've... <laughs> well, I'm glad you were bold enough to try and describe it because even after playing a lot of hours in the game, it's still a little bit of a strange story to try and grasp the the ins and outs of what was intended versus what the reality came well, off as. If there's, you know I mean? I mean, there's been plenty of fiction around this, and I, I'm thinking even like the recent Marvel mo- movie Eternals, which dealt with that kind of, you know, what is it to stand back and watch humanity essentially rip itself apart and how much should you get involved in in trying to help or you know save people's lives when you are just merely a bit on a server and those elements i do i do think when they're explored work do actually work really well i don't think you know this game's overarching story i think is a bit <sighs> tropey and doesn't always it certainly doesn't have a payoff but i i I can't help but thinking the things that I loved about the story first time around, which was Kaim's kind of you know, reawakening to the, the, the love's lost, um, that whole scene with his daughter um, essentially dying in front of his very eyes and having to then take on the grandchildren, although they are kind of annoying, but, you know, having to take over that responsibility and seeing, yeah, that's, that's an interesting, um, an idea that I, you know, I can't say that I'd necessarily really seen explored in games much prior to that, um, mm. even if it has been something that's probably been explored a bit since that. Um, and I think the Thousand Years stuff, although slow, is is interesting as well. So I've, there is elements in this game that the reason I think I originally fell in love with it still stand the test of time. And I think you know, they do work. We can talk about things like the, the art structure and the design of the characters later, but let's actually talk about who the characters are and kind of what they bring, good and bad, to the game. Kaim is the the lead protagonist of the game. That's who you start the story with. Um, you quick, very quickly uh, meet uh, Seth at the start of the game, um, and they're kind of your core duo um, throughout the game. Although, interestingly, you can actually run your gaming party without either of them in, which I don't think is necessarily that common for the main protagonist to be optional. Yeah, I I kept well. I I mean, I most of what I did with my party was once I had all four immortals, they were kind of always in the party because it's it's. I I won't say that it's a bad call to not have them all in your party when you can. I I will say that you're probably making things more difficult by not having as many immortals in your party as you can. Uh, not because they're immortal, but because of the way that the uh abilities and skills work in this game namely that you can equip as many as you have slots for and have learned on your immortals whereas your other characters your mortal characters are limited to either what they personally have learned so which can't really be altered like one of them is basically a white mage one of them is basically a black mage plus like an accessory maybe two accessories if you get real fancy um but yeah for the for the most part i kept i kept the immortals in my party when i could um and and kind of rotated the others in and out to suit whatever i was doing and or whatever skills i needed the immortals to be learning from them at the time i feel like the game pigeonholes you a little bit by um 
it gives you the immortals and then the way that they learn a lot of the the better skills is to have them with this uh, this skill linking system where you need to have the other character the non-immortal character in the party and you essentially link the immortal skill so that they will learn it from the the non-immortal so it it does the way that i played it it did keep me rotating characters round and round and round i mean there's a yeah there's kind of a weird point where i think your max party is 5 and it takes quite a long time before you get more than the five characters. I think yeah. by the end of disc one, you just get the fifth one. And then it it seems to take quite a bit longer before you get the next couple of characters actually into the party. So you, you sort of learn with the two immortals and the, the either two or three non, uh, non-immortals. It gives you a good amount of time to figure out how that system works, which I appreciated. And also, they break you up. I, I actually de- tend to like it uh, when games do this, because it forces me sometimes to use characters that I might not normally have in my party. But they break up your party a couple of times to where you have smaller groups of predetermined characters, and mm. you can't always access all of your party at the same time. So I, I kind of liked that. Uh, there are some places where that becomes a little bit difficult, especially if you haven't been using those characters regularly, but... I never found it to be so difficult that it was unmanageable. It just kind of gave me a little bit more experience in using different groups of characters. So that that was kind of a nice thing, I thought. It does feel balanced in the regards to what they were trying to do of how you learn the skills. or uh, And you learn the skills in a number of ways. John's already mentioned there about skill linking in the Immortals. Skill link is specific talent from Immortal and Mortals learn more skills the higher the level that they get up until i think level 52 uh not entirely sure why they chose 52 but that's ultimately when when they have all their skills learned um and there is a balance of you know you swap one out and you bring another one in and learn that skill but they also learn skills from equipment that is essentially attached to them um which quite comically at times is actually attached to the character themselves as you play whether it's earrings or a little crown or a, a necklace, etc. Kitty cat ears. Um, That's that yeah. was. <laughs> the I, old, I don't remember yeah, what skill it was, but ears. it's a pretty good skill from what I recall. And yeah, uh, and, and you essentially learn and balance your ability. And as Leah said, there's times when your party gets split, so there's a need to manage the equipment that's on each, not only for the skills that they bring, but to strengthen weaknesses in characters. So you may have a uh, essentially a white mage but you may not have the ability to do any essentially um there's four magic types so you got white magic black magic spirit magic and composite magic and you may only have the white but you can't do attacks with white or there's only a couple that you can potentially do and that are relatively weak so then you equip sort of a bracelet that may allow you to have sort of black magic or spirit magic up to a certain level so there is a constant juggling of this equipment between people and then to another uh, degree between your immortals to make sure that they can all learn the skills from them all. And that that keeping of things was interesting and that form of menuing these uh, yeah. elements across the characters is for me where the game is at its absolute strongest from a gameplay perspective. Uh, I felt that that was something that I felt still held up relatively well and kept 
the constant change in, in combat and, and structure. And the, there was actually quite a lot of times, even towards the end of the game, where I thought I was actually going into a battle really strong, but I forgot that I'd actually swapped an element of one character onto another. And actually I had a character that was essentially redundant in a battle and I had to battle it with everyone else and they were left to essentially defend a situation. Mm, the amount of customization in it, like if you're into that kind of menu management, real nitty gritty, like anally retentive, trying to make sure that you're always working on as many things as possible. Yeah. You can spend a hell of a lot of time in the menus, just messing about with the skills and switching them on and off. And it's, uh, and have, I did. Yeah. Yeah. Same. <laughs> um, and the, I'm pretty sure that the in-game timer continues. So that's probably why I'm on 70 hours at the end of the game. It does. Yeah. But yeah. You have, um, uh, interesting situations with the non-immortal characters where they get their own skills but then they only have like one equipment slot so if you have um like the the children cook and mac who i think one is a white mage and the other one is a spirit mage but you yes. kind of want to have all of the different magic on them together if you've only got a couple of mages in your party so then you have to use their equipment slot to give them you know the bracelet that gives them all of the level uh, up to level eight black magic as well as the white. But then when you do that, you then can't give them the bracelet that gives them more MP or more HP. So you've got this like super powerful mage who, who doesn't have a particularly high uh, pool of magic to draw from, or you've got like two immortal characters who have 30 skills equipped to them each. Who've got like 7,000 HP and you're like, Oh, I've got to bring cook into this battle. It's mandatory to have cook. And she comes in and she's got 2,000 HP. You're like, oh, my God, I'm just, she's just going to get wiped immediately. Cannon fodder. And, yeah, it, it's it's constant, like, fiddling around with all these things. And it is kind of cool, but it does get a little bit brain frying by the time you're trying mm. to, like, really optimize all your characters together. So, as mentioned, you start the story essentially very quickly with your two characters, uh, Kaim uh, and Seth. I personally felt that Seth was a much more interesting character, but, you know, hey-ho. And then relatively early on, you get your first mortal character, your first mage, because both Kaim and Seth are combat characters. Uh, you get your mage, Jansen Freed. Um, this is definitely, I think, uh, a character that comes across quite interestingly and quite differently to maybe how they did when the game launched and it's certainly mm. something that concerned me a lot more this time than i remember them concerning me 10 years ago yeah you do have your like 2000s like early to mid 2000s tropes in here that are quite nicely on display there's very much the kind of the uh like new metal gongora at the end of the game wearing his weird looking power armor with cow boots and he's got his frosted <laughs> tips so you're like this man looks like he's just been pulled off the, the stage at a crazy town concert and, and sent over here and then you've got like the fun sex offender from family guy type <laughs> character who ends up being a large member of the game and kind of gets actually gets rewarded for his creepy behavior which isn't yeah. fantastic so if if i may <laughs> Jansen, like I, I, I agree that he was intended to be kind of a, a stereotype or a, um, just kind of a, a stand-in for the, oh yeah, he's just you know this fun-loving guy, and you know he, 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 uh, 
well, like the like the manual says, oh, he loves women, he loves wine. He's just not not a serious guy, you know. He just he likes having fun, like 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 dudes do. And I mean, it's not it's not a great look. But what really turned me off of Jansen was the fact where he quite literally roofies Ming and kidnaps her, and. Yeah. And she ends up marrying him. Like, girl, you do mm. not need this guy. Like, what is happening? Also, backstory, he's going to be, like, dead in 20 years and you're going to live forever. Well, like even this- beside that, like, he, her backstory, I think, is pretty cool. She effectively gives up her memory of her own accord to save her people. And, yeah. and she just, for no reason really that I can discern, decides that this guy who has drugged her and and you know has continued to just be a little bit of a creeper like through this entire thing i am not a hundred percent sure i'm not i'm not sure at all hundred percent be damned i i don't know why she decides that jansen is like the best choice for her i don't know why any of them do like he (sighs) He's he upsets me. I I don't like him. I I I guess as a a party member he's fine. He's a mage, whatever. Uh, he has some useful abilities. And you know, they they make him as the story goes along, they kind of back off on him and make it like, "Oh, yeah, you know, he's not such a bad guy. You remember remember how cool he is? Like he's taking care of the kids." Uh-huh. He's he's going to be a king now, and I just keep thinking back to, like, how he got involved with the party in the first place, and it just, it's not, I don't like it, it's not okay. Yeah. I mean, when when the whole lover of women and wine is done like Tyrion in Game of Thrones, it's a little bit different to a character that's supposed to be the comic relief and the levity, but is actually but, a well, character that can kind of make your skin crawl in this game, and the fact that... As, as Leah said, straight up drugs the queen to kidnap her, and yet that's supposed to be charming. I... So it's also weird that sometimes literature or you know games or whatever can fall into an area that they don't really know they're falling into. Although I don't 100 always agree with that. If you're writing something, you kind of know what you're doing. But there's there's even a scene where Ming gets drunk in a bar, and it's it's a comedy element. Yeah, she gets drunk and she passes out. And then there's this weird moment where Jensen looks at her and there's almost like a suggestive like, well, maybe I can, you know, now. And you could say, okay, well, maybe I misread that. Apart from Seth walks in at that point and says, what are you doing? What are you actually thinking to do what I'm thinking you're thinking you to do? He's like, no, no, absolutely not me. Ha ha. And you're like, so the game is incredibly aware that who he is, and so it's it's tonally completely deaf. Um, it probably Jansen, was. Jansen, are you thinking about doing a sex crime? You know that's not okay. <laughs> it's so odd. Such a silly and it, boy. And, it, and it's so sad as well because that's not my memories of this game. Let's say my memories are stronger than on some of the more positive and forward-thinking aspects of what this game was then. But actually viewing it in a context of what it is now, it's like yeah, J- yeah Jansen annoyed me at the time. Going back to it. 14 15 yeah. years later i'm like <laughs> no that's not that's not great yeah and the fact that he's you know he's introduced as a third character you're having for such a long part of that story he is 
Mm, he's guaranteed the in your humor. party for like the first 12 hours of the yeah. game. He, he's or the, more, probably 20 He's hours, the humor maybe. to the game as well. And it's like that. What he is saying and what he is doing do not align. Like, he's trying to be funny and quirky, and you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But the actions that are actually doing, as Tony said, is completely intentional. Like, that, you're not misreading that and thinking, oh, he's a, he's a, he's a dirty little quirky person. Like, he, he's just a straight-up horrible let. I mean, who somehow gets rewarded, not only rewarded, but as Leah said, Ming has a st- Ming is arguably the strongest character in the game from a mentality perspective for what she actually intentionally gives up in terms of her story arc and has a really powerful thousand years of dreams. Yeah, and I, and I think it's, it's easy to just say, well, you know, you've got to think of when the game, the culture at the time, what's allowed. But it would be amiss not to call it out for what it is now, which is just yeah, you know, exactly. from, a t- from a perspective of now. And, uh, yeah, you can only... We're only talking about it from our perspective for now, really, is, yeah, it doesn't sit well with somebody that, you know, has been brought into this game, uh, yeah, without knowing that that stuff is there. And it, it, I think if you don't know it's there, it, it hits even harder. I mean, I kind of remembered it was there, and to see it play out now, it's like, wow, that, that's not great. Yeah. I was not expecting it. I'll put it that yeah, way. No, like, I, it is not something that was bad enough for me personally to say, nope, done with this game. Like, I, I, I can read it a little bit in context. It doesn't make it okay, but like it wasn't it mm. wasn't offensive on a level to me, but I can I can see that being a, a real issue for some people. So, I I I just think it's worth having people be aware. Mm. Yeah, I I it, I don't think you get away with it in a game now and it's not a well-worn trope to the point that it's something that we've necessarily seen before, certainly not regularly. It was clearly an intentional move that was questionable then and absolutely tone deaf now. Um, and it, it, it's something that is in stark contrast to a lot of what this game tries to tell in terms of the strength of the characters, uh, which is a little bit weird because, you know, the antagonists are somewhat comical. The darkest act that any of the characters in the game commits is arguably what Jansen does. In fact, I don't even think it's arguable. I think it is well, what Jansen Humanity, does. you see. <laughs> this is the only worst thing. So we obviously we have more characters. We've already talked about the grandkids now. Cook and Mac. What's everyone's thoughts on Cook and Mac? I mean, they are also a trope, uh, albeit a less mm. damaging one. They're just kind of the quirky child, not geniuses, but uh, you know the the children, the very capable children who are following you around and who are. For some reason, it's cool that these 10-year-olds are in your party. Um, these mortal 10-year-olds, they're not even immortal. <laughs> like You are throwing these children up against some real harsh stuff. Um, I mean, they're, I they're fine. Kind of whatever. It, I, ha- I did not have very strong feelings about either, either of them. It does make me laugh that they step up to fight and Kaim is like, no, you can't fight. It's too dangerous. And they go... We're here to fight with you. And he's like, oh, okay then. But Grandpa. Oh, all right. <laughs> well, you couldn't It'll have be an the empty making party of you. slot. You don't have any other, any other companions yet. <laughs> and then we go on with the, the, the rest of the protagonists. Um, Ming, who we've obviously spoken about as the queen, uh, gets married to Jansen for some reason. We've got Sarah Sizzlart, uh, who is, I suppose, originally... 
kind of the villain of a location that you realize is uh, a manifestation of is it self-doubt and fears and then once that demon's conquered you realize it's sarah who was kaim's wife i mean considering that this was their old house that they went to i feel like this wasn't a huge surprise <laughs> when it turned out to be her. sarah uh, is fine as a character uh, i wasn't super clear on why she was a witch in the first place but i guess cause... negative emotions yeah energy something jrpg yeah. tropes probably sure. and then we get our last two characters so we get tolton uh who is part of the now abolished monarchy um that is strangely brought in then manipulated and then ends up in your party it's it's a little bit clumsy a uh, very strange character he's the sort of the the traditional scaredy cat i guess although jansen technically was until tolton comes in and then tolton's really a scaredy cat um who actually gets told to kind of toughen up by the other character that you collect um and then we also have said uh said is actually the son of seth uh, again, family related, and for anyone that's thinking that the uh, name Sid is familiar, uh, yes, it is a reference to Sid from the Final Fantasy games. <laughs> yep. So, I, Sid kind of brings up something that I found a little odd about some parts of the game in general, and it's that it seems that there are only five immortals in this world, right? There are the four in your party, and there's Gungora. But people, when they find out that that there are immortals, like th there are a number of people that Kaim sees after having seen them, you know, 50 years ago or 100 years ago or whatever. And, uh, you know, the same thing with Sed, finding out that Seth, his mother, is, you know, has not aged as far as he can tell. And he now, in fact, is considerably older looking than she is. They Everybody kind of seems to take the immortal thing in stride. <laughs> Um, especially with Ming, who is a queen and is known as like the immortal queen or something like that, or the the thousand years queen. I don't I don't remember what her yeah, thousand year queen yeah yeah name is yeah. But but everybody kind of seems to take the these four people are these five people rather are immortals thing in stride, and that's a little bit odd. I mean, I I guess it maybe makes sense with the fact that there's magic in this world that is taken as a matter of course, but I I don't know. I found that to be kind of strange. It also goes against the thousand years of dreams elements a little bit because there's an awful lot of those where um, Kaim is describing an experience uh, talking to somebody else or this village that he's been back to like 80 years and he meets an old woman who was a little kid the first time and it always seems like he is very conscious not to talk about immortality or the mm -hmm. fact that people sort of remember this person who came to the village decades ago and they're like you look a little bit like that guy who i remember when i was a <laughs> yeah. kid and it seems that there's a very pointed decision that he doesn't want to talk about it at all doesn't want to tell anybody as if it's some massive taboo thing but then yeah in the sort of the current timeline everything is just kind of as you say people just take it in their stride so it sort of seems to tread both lines of that that um question whether or not the immortals are sort of known about and Accepted. It gets murky, mm. I think. Like, does Seth only have the one kid who said in the thousand years she's been there? Why did it take 
roughly 960 years for Kaim and Sarah to have a child. Like, what what were they doing for the previous 960 years? Have they had loads of ch- children that have died? And technically, you know, hundreds of grandchildren and there's only Cook and Mac. That, like, none of that is answered. It's just like, this is this is just what happens. Deal with it. And that, that always felt a little bit strange to me because you're trying to piece together the basis and the background of the story of the world that they've built. And the game starts to discredit it throughout and then kind of, as a alluded to throws it out the window <laughs> in the ending um just a little, a little bit strange in, in that regard it's i mean i know there's plot holes it, and everything but these ones just it, seem it doesn't big. help to some degree that the thousand years of dreams stuff is separated from the actual main game obviously it's produced different um but it it's there to be read so it's meant to give you some background information but it's it feels like it's from a well, it is from a completely different author. Go on to do the thing that is almost like, well, here's the kind of the wrapper of what Lost Odyssey is. And they've taken with it and they've run with it and they've made something really interesting. And then the actual main part of the, the game, it's like, well, if only it had the elements, so many of these elements from the kind of more interesting story wrapper that could have been there. And but it feel and because one's inside the other, it's almost a bit like, you know, um, a modern day version of audio files, isn't it? You go around collecting this stuff and it's giving you the background information of what the actual world with. And sometimes it just feels like a lazy way of you're layering more content in, into a world. Well, if you only had read all the, the diary entries, then you would know more. And I, so sometimes I like that. Sometimes I like to be the one that is seeking out every single nugget and actually feeling like, oh, I've earned this kind of fleshing out of the world. But I, I think... The, the problem is Lost Odyssey hangs so much on that central conceit about um, immortality in those main characters, but then doesn't really know what to do with it. So then creates like mm. two other shells around it in a more traditional trope. Well, this is a JRPG, so this is how we'll, we'll play it out. Yet, strangely, it has all the answers in its thousand years of dreams, but they it's almost like they don't have the confidence in themselves to kind of get that onto the screen it's like well that's maybe a bit too far out there that's not a traditional rpg and it feels like it's multiple mm-hmm. yeah push pull directions going on from different authors and game styles and it maybe it is that kind of broken relationship of kind of coming out of a mainstream studio wanting to do one thing only having the finances to do one the new partners like it it's got so many elements there that could make for a really really interesting overall game but it it kind of maybe focuses its attention a bit too traditional and doesn't actually kind of embrace the one thing that makes it the more interesting you know tonally out of so many other games that have been before and so many games that have been been after so i'm not sure what quite happened there but clearly there you know there was a not a miscommunication but a a want to do one thing and maybe the delivery ended up being something entirely different Mm -hmm. Obviously, uh, we've got the antagonists that were mentioned earlier, so we may as well talk about the antagonists, as certainly Gongora plays a large part in the overarching narrative of the entire game. Um, and we've also got General Karkanis, who's the uh, you know, the general that, that's part of uh, Ming's forces of a neutral country uh, who tries to basically run a coup, um, fails tremendously, uh, is a, a bit of a silly 
I suppose, sub-boss, but he's kind of one of only real two antagonists in the game. Um, but certainly Gongora is. Has anyone got any thoughts about the antagonists in this game and their portrayal? He has some very powerful eyebrows. Oh, yes. That's all. Tremendous. That's all I've got. <laughs> he is 50% he is eyebrow. It, it's very tropey after the handful of Final Fantasy games that I've played before this. Like, um, you have uh, a lot of very, very disjointed things in my memory from the situation with Gongor and like things that kind of he has this sort of extremely evil plan to do whatever it is he's trying to do, but at the same time he has all these like little mini set pieces. There's a ridiculous scene in in Ura during the middle of the game, and I think it's it's where you start getting Tolton in your party, and then Sed comes in, but. For some reason, he's just going to set a load of pirates on fire, like he's just dumped them in a big pool of oil, and he's yeah. going to set it on fire. Like uh, he he recruits all of these weird lich type enemies to end up fighting a an extremely anticlimactic boss battle with you. Like it just kind of feels to me that they wanted somebody that was, you know, just supposed to be some sort of like purely evil force that everybody would hate, but it didn't really sit well with me he just kind of comes across as goofy and he likes monologuing and i don't know he looks kind of stu- looks kind of stupid with his with his yeah. like golden frosted hair and his his weird boots <laughs> at the end of the game and i just it's, it's military haircut almost i like i, I kind of look at him in the same way that i look at like robotnik in a sonic game like he's just a kind of a semi competent weirdo I mean, um, he's he's pretty evil. Like the stuff that he does is bad, but yeah, it's not it's not Kefka bad. It's not Sephiroth bad. Like it's you yeah. know, and I'm I'm intentionally pulling the most stereotypical ones because a lot of how these games do bosses tends to be that big stereotype of a boss. I and I was frankly shocked that we didn't get to the end have a fight with Gongora and then oh no it was actually this god thing all along and then something yeah. else descends from the ceiling yeah. I was fully expecting yeah. that it didn't happen and um, I don't think I was disappointed so much as I was just a little surprised uh, I, but yeah it I, I mean he was he was serviceable I guess as a villain but not memorable is is my my besides the eyebrows is my, is my real uh, contribution here to me, he always felt like he was the sidekick to a, a real villain. Mm. Like, he was never truly villainous in how he said he had a comical villain laugh. And, you know, but, like, his look was a little bit goofy. Um, he never really had that that presence in the game that he was a villain. And, you know, you mentioned Sephiroth. It's the same writer who wrote both. Mm-hmm. And yet Sephiroth is a really complex villain who is, like, held up as almost the pinnacle of villainy in JRPGs versus Gongora, mm. who is just, like, not even a footnote on the page of, like, even decent villains. It it just it felt like antagonist-wise the game went off a cliff. Like, it, there really wasn't a uh, the antagonist driver to continue through. I'm, I'm going to, like, boldly claim that I don't think Gongora earned the dancing mad motifs in his boss fight music at the end. That would have been appropriate if there had have been another fight afterwards, where like the evil council appeared yeah. from the ceiling, um, and I, I think that there's a there's a kind of a cool um, 
way that some of the fights against him work throughout the game where you're I mean it's it's not really an actual fight it's more just kind of a set piece and it 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 helped the idea that I think by the time I got to the end of the game and I'd gone through the optional areas and I'd done all of those extra fights in the the basement of the the low town or whatever it is with the boss at the end of that is probably the hardest thing I've fought up until this point I mean the DLC might blow it away but I think that that's oh, God, probably yeah, the that, worst uh, thing. Oh, God, yeah, what was it, the Immortal? Or yeah, immortal it's, it, it's in, like a blob yeah. thing. And it's, it, a big, it has, it's a big blob with a lot of health. Yes, yeah, it has I, like 180,000 XP or something. Um, uh-huh. To compare that, the, the triple fight against Gongora at the end, the first section of that, he summons a, a magic beast or something, and I think it has 50,000 or 55,000 HP, so it's like pitiful in comparison. But you get to that Gongora fight and the way that the the kind of the set piece goes is I don't think that what you're doing actually does anything. I was hitting him with the the hardest physical attacks and then the absolute hardest like black magic double casted things. And it seems like it just kept going to the point where it didn't matter that he was taking 15,000 points of damage or more than that, like every turn. He wasn't going to die after three turns. It had to do the thing where he casts a spell that knocks everybody out. And then there's like a little thing as like Matt comes in and he's like, don't worry, everybody, I'll heal you from off screen. And it goes around all of the non-immortal characters like helping you. So you're just kind of surviving for the few rounds. And I think that that works better than if you got massively overleveled and then had a boss fight that you would destroy immediately. Um, But it still doesn't make him an interesting character. So we talked about, obviously, the Thousand Years of Dream really is the underlying story of it. And super user from our forum said, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention the short stories about Kaim's past. You can tell these were written by an acclaimed novelist because the quality of the writing in those far exceeds the video game fare of the core game. It's not a slight on the story and the characters, but the deep characterization and feeling uh, you can find in those short stories rivals anything I've seen in a game. Credit should also be given to how they are presented, taking full advantage of its format. And it's said here that the game's story was written by Sakaguchi, whose main aim was to create a highly emotional experience that explored the human psyche. According to him, the game's setting revolved around the conflict and its effects. In addition to Sakaguchi's work, Japanese novelist Kiyoshi Shigematsu created over 30 stories detailing Kaim's life as an immortal titled A Thousand Years of Dreams. According to Shigematsu, it was the first time he had ever worked on a video game and was unsure about whether he could evoke emotion as he did in his books. In the end, he found that the interactive medium gave his work a new impact that moved him upon uh, into tears upon seeing it in place, um, courtesy of Famitsu. Um, and I th- there, there's obviously there is a wide range um, of different stories in there. Some of them I thought were far more effective than others, but there was definitely a lot in there um, that you know, I think there's, there's a lot of value to witnessing even outside of the game if you have no interest in playing the game uh, I, I think the the way that they're presented and the way that they're presented is as a, a visual novel with text that, that that can move in certain ways um interacts with the sound of the story um to, to kind of tell these tales um as john's already mentioned they can kind of be skipped um and some people might not have read them at all but yeah, that that's kind of the underlying story that everything is attempted to be built upon and, and gives some real background into the characters. And there's some in there as well for Seth and, and Ming. One thing we haven't really spoken about uh, is the uh, the visuals, the visual style of the game, uh, the art design and the world, obviously key to so many JRPG games, um, as well as the design of the characters. 
Um, has anyone got any thoughts on any of those points that they'd like to make? I really liked the visual design. I know maybe it's not for everyone's taste, but I think um, if I'm comparing it to a number of JRPGs that I've played, where you know they they have they lean a bit more heavily on the more uh, fanciful elements, I quite liked the fact that it had quite a maybe this was an Unreal Engine um design decision more than anything but that it was a bit more muted in tone i quite like the fact that it felt a bit more rooted in a human world reality with a little kind of more kind of not quite steampunk and everything it went that far but there was a kind of you know how do you kind of ram magic into our existing machines rather than these just being magical machines also also the design of the characters were Apart from maybe you know the full frontal breasts in in your in your face all the time, but you know, and the fact that they never change their costumes ever, which I suppose from a from a point of view of running through the game game world would maybe make sense. But you know, I think I thought the design the design philosophy throughout felt pretty traditional, but I didn't dislike it at all. To me, it always kind of made a a sense within the world, and there was a number of different locations you went to the environments were interesting enough if not you know nothing necessarily spectacular but it certainly wasn't a not that's a weird sense certainly wasn't an unpretty game but it's it's i think it has a visual language that worked throughout the the my entirety of the playthrough anyway yeah there are some interesting like backgrounds that look like oil paintings and stuff it's something i've been noticing a lot in like older movies that i've been watching a recently stage with the... camera as well isn't it mm, yeah and i think that that fits quite well when you've got something like this it's certainly for the the other 3d jrpgs that i've played it, it seems to be quite a well-worn thing that they um yeah, you know, by this point they they seem to have got it nailed down quite well i like a lot of the color palette being a bit more muted there's a lot of like naturey things um lots of sort of greens and browns but not in that kind of off-putting way that a lot of early 360 games had very muted color palettes like it still gets the like the beauty of the landscape and stuff across it's just not you know sort of color wheel shockingly bright hurt your eyes type colors in in most places and it's got the like the the distinctive sort of purple magic energy sort of purple and blue shades that you get in a lot of things so it kind of it ticked the boxes that i think it needed to 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 do um but then in general like the world itself i thought was quite quite well designed like the map for the the overall landscape is quite good i don't know if um it's specifically to do with the the visuals or if it's more like the 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 traveling around the map uh elements that i enjoyed and i liked the um like the progression that you get in basically every final fantasy game i've played where you have a continent and then you get a boat so you can go a bit further and then eventually you get a bigger boat or you get a plane or something that an airship that allows you to to travel to like further flung locations but there's always that point in those games where the map kind of opens up and i'm like oh i want to go and see what's over in that little tropical looking section in the south or like you know check out these new bays that clearly have have places that i can park the ship up and see the the icy stuff in the north of the map so it, it mm. kind of it has the the exploration style for the graphics like as I don't know how to explain it well, but like as the game goes on, you keep seeing the new new areas that can be like geographically quite different from each other, and that's that's always something that I appreciate in these games. Leo, you're our JRPG expert. Um, 
with th- thousands of them under your belt. <laughs> uh, what are your thoughts on the uh, the art style and the world that's crafted in Lost Odyssey? Yeah, I didn't. I didn't think that it did anything spectacular, but I did think that what it what it set out to do, it did quite well. I, it's a good looking game. It does hold up pretty well, in my opinion, on that front. Um, it it has enough variety, kind of like John was saying. As you get into some of the different areas, you can you can tell one city from another, and one kind of forested, you know, out of the way area from another re- relatively easily. And th- that's really all I want from from my games is just you know give me a little bit of variety and make it look pretty. And th- this game does for for the most part look look pretty. Um, it, the the cutscenes. Uh, I I didn't actually know about the different varieties of cutscenes, which is is interesting because it may actually explain one of the problems, the technical problems I had, which was not actually a visual problem, but it it fits in pretty well with what we're what we're talking about here. So uh, the only major glitch that I ran into when I was playing Lost Odyssey, and I was playing the digital version on an Xbox Series X, so um. I ran into a problem where with some of the cutscenes, not all of them, but some of them, the sound wouldn't play. And I, oh, yeah, yeah, I had that. I, I didn't, I didn't figure out why ever really that was a thing, but it may just be that it was one of the different types of cutscene because it wasn't always, um, but, but just sometimes it, and it wasn't always like all of this, like it wasn't completely silent. It would be like the voices wouldn't play or you know, some something yeah. along those lines. And it was a little jarring because it does kind of take you out of the experience if you can't hear what's going on uh, as well. And I mean, I, there's subtitles, so, you know, it's not it's not a game breaker or anything like that. But if you're used to hearing the the characters actually speaking their dialogue as well, then, you know, it's it's not not an ideal experience, I would say. Uh, but visually, yes, yeah, I, I, I was I was um, uh, pleased uh, enough I will say not not anything uh, just kind of to to wow people uh, I I would say but um but but good definitely good. I think what's interesting is reading back about the the, the troubled uh development cycle that they had in in, in terms of the unreal updates mm. and the different clarities of the of the you know the cutscenes between them because Never is that more apparent than at the very start of the game, coming out of the cutscene into the battle on the on the battlefield, mm-hmm. where even now I was shocked at how good that looked. Mm-hmm. Sort of visually, you come out of the cutscene, you're fighting the the the, the cannons as or equivalents, the very strange contraptions that you kind of fight in, and it looks incredible. And I remember thinking to myself, like this, this game. Is going to look so much better than I was expecting it to. And then you finish that and then you go, oh, all right, okay. Um, and nothing else quite matches it all the way through the experience. But then you see some cutscenes that look really low quality and really poor. And and then you have some that have like the facial animations, usually on Jansen, weirdly enough, who has bizarre moving eyebrows. Mm-hmm. It's like the old dairy milk kind of advert. I think that's that's maybe um, another design choice with Jansen. Like, oh, he's supposed to be the comic character, so he's going to have these yeah. really big eyes and this really expressive face because he's the clown, the the silly harassment clown. And it just it God, it just Jansen. felt like it was kind of up and down, up and down mm-hmm. uh, yeah. a little bit in the tech, and it starts on such a high that it's very hard to match it. But yeah, again, in terms of the world, I, I very much liked 
um is it Ura the the, the first yeah, one the, that has like the, the residential area city. and stuff? Yeah. Um just really good locations. Uh I don't think it ever matches the kind of the appeal of something like um Midgar in my memory from you know Final Fantasy Seven when I played that as a kid. I don't think it quite matches that majesty and uh and scale and it obviously it is bigger going back now but in terms of how you sort of imagine it and piece things together um it doesn't quite match that but it's uh, very very good for for the most part in terms of uh developing i think out the the cities and building into the original overarching story of the warring regions against each other and those being um sort of differentiable between them which which i really appeared and we've got um, Kasuga-san here from the forum saying I also found myself really turned off by the character designs, in particular Cook's main outfit was more than a bit off-putting to me at least, despite liking some of the characters, Seth being the best when I finally got back to it and beat it, my feelings weren't quite as harsh it's a solid JRPG dragged down by the aforementioned issues, as well as pages upon pages upon pages of short stories that whilst not terrible felt very out of place and brought the game to a screeching halt because, of course, I'm going to read them. Uh, give me that law. I'm glad I finished it, but it's definitely not in my top JRPGs of all time. Um, so I suppose uh, the character looks is obviously a, a core part of, of JRPGs. I personally didn't really like the design of any of the characters, bar maybe said, um, which I quite liked. It's kind of rough and gruff uh, pirate. You know, ponytail uh, and it's um know, like bell bell bottom flame jeans. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they um, would, wouldn't have looked out of place uh, on Gongora at certain points. And I think <laughs> Seth, I think Seth looked pretty cool, but the rest of them, nah, wasn't for me. I didn't love any of the character designs really, but I didn't dislike them. Honestly, I, I, it was a little silly that the kids had basically matching outfits in different colors. Um. And yeah, I, I've already mentioned how I feel about Kaim's belly shirt, belly armor. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, eh, I, it was fine, I guess. So we've got super user on the forum says RPGs were a genre that has eluded me all of, uh, all of my gaming life. My most played game ever is RuneScape. Aside from that, I'd only ever completed about six RPGs, going from my groovy list. Lost Odyssey was one of those rare 360 exclusives that was mentioned after the console had run its course, so I picked up I picked it up in a CEX shop, uh, knowing little about it, and played it through it in 2018. By this time, you could install the game to the drive, which I found essential due to the long battle loading times. I took well to the world, which balanced a personal plot with a larger world. The plot bothered me in how you end up with a party of globally important people, even though it seemed at first that they were playing some nobodies. The broad outline of the plot is satisfying, though there are some diversions that harm it in its pacing. Thankfully, these diversions have set pieces to mix them up, like a stealth section featuring the great Jansen. Set pieces mark the game in many ways you just don't see in modern games. The whole game features director's cut camera angles, even though it's not being used to mask loading times. It makes them for memorable environments supported by a creative art direction. Some characters' costumes can be overdone, but at least they're unique and don't hint to a real-world culture. They are genuinely fantasy nations with their own customs. 
So Kasuga-san mentioned there about uh, a stealth section as part of the gameplay, um, and we'll quickly cover sort of the some of the gameplay traditions in here. And there are a number of areas that make up certain elements. Um, there's a couple of stealth sections, for example, um, or or bits where certain things are changed up uh, to try and, I suppose, change the pacing of things, but also uh, break you out of the the constant procession of the same gameplay type. Um, and, and to try and keep it fresh. Uh, and this happens with some of the combat sections as well. I'm thinking of um, uh, Cook taking on the Kelalon trials and, and you know, the uh, elements like that where, you you know, Leo mentioned earlier about the party being split where you have Kaim's family and everyone else and you've got to go and do these sections um, of floating platforms, etc. Uh, what was everyone's thought about actually trying to change up the structure of the gameplay? I thought it worked out pretty well. Uh, I, I'm never really a fan of stealth, but it's nice that there was something different in there so that you could, um, mm. you know, not, not have just you go around world, you get into random battle, you hit the thing until it fall down. You know, it, it, it was kind of nice that there were a few sections that broke away from that a bit. Yeah, and I, 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 hmm. I found because a lot of the I think found a lot more and more complex stuff was contained within the dungeons where there was a lot of stuff going a lot of moving blocks and stuff and rolling balls to make doors open etc. With you, but you know, and in some regards that felt a little out of place maybe in an RPG like this. But you know, you certainly changed the tone of it. In the main world, so what you got the like running around with spy bots. Uh, moving around those kind of areas and then having to, you know, jump in and jump out of areas so they couldn't see you. I, I, I like that stuff. I think it kind of broke up the just hack and slash gameplay that, you know, would happen with a turn-based gameplay that would happen. You know, they give you a little kind of more pause of thought within the environment you're in. Mm. Yeah, there were um, points where I think the splitting the party up, there's a specific spot in either disc two or disc three with the the trains where you then have, I think at that point you only have seven characters, but you meet the next two during the like the following scenes, which probably take up like maybe it's like the second half of disc two or something. It goes on for quite a long time and it sort of cuts you off from doing any side quests or traveling. You really just get like pigeonholed into these little spots. And it's like you wouldn't have ever really had these party compositions before. So you kind of, you know, you're you're given a new character and just immediately thrown into, okay, this is, this is now going to be Seth and Tolton running around together. And obviously you've never met Tolton before. So you've suddenly got all these new skill links to try out with Seth and like figure out their different, different fighting styles between them and stuff. So I think that's kind of cool that they do that. I mean, it, it reminds me of um, something like final fantasy six, where you could split your party up and at points you could choose, you want to had you wanted to have like three squads of four different people or certain points. It would switch you to a, a completely random couple of characters to do so i i kind of appreciate the the idea that that you are going to have to try and at least do something with a lot of these characters and the point i think where you you then start learning that the new skills come through and it's like well you kind of actually do want to try and use all the characters until they get to their highest level because that's a lot of the the points where you can get the real best skills like i think um jansen ends up finishing with like he gets double cast and it's the only way to learn it for the immortals to get him to max level and then play with him a bit more. So you're kind of forced to, to use characters that you might not do otherwise. And I, I, 
I can see that people wouldn't like that, but for me, it's kind of like a I enjoy being um, being tasked with uh, with doing something that I might not otherwise do. It it kind of puts an extra an extra little bit of fun onto the game. So I mean, it, it's yeah, it works quite well for me, but I think it, it's easy to see where there are some some slight problems with it as well for other people. So the last part about the game to talk about is the audio which, you know, remiss of us to not actually talk about Nobuo Uematsu's score, um, given, you know, he's the legendary composer of, of the Final Fantasy games, uh, both prior and some post this game. Uh, what's everyone's thoughts on the sort of the musical score and the, and the sound design within the game? I don't recall who said it previously, but um, I really did get the... Oh man, this is a this is a Nobuo Uematsu score out of out of it. Um, it is very much that. So y- you kind of know what you're getting if you have played Final Fantasy games in particular before. This is that music. So if you like that, then you're probably going to like this. If you don't like that, then this is not going to do anything to sway you. I I, I didn't feel like it stood out especially, but it was it was good. You know, it was it just wasn't it didn't break away from what I already kind of knew it was going to be, which is both a good the, thing the and a bad thing, thing. I guess is very good. Uh, you know the yeah. Oh, I'm not gonna sing it now, but the. <laughs> the Oh, the Sheena Easton song. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah that's, that's interesting. Yeah, there, there is there is some really good pieces in amongst you know some more ambient work, but you know the main theme is you know, it's it's an earworm. If I hear it, I know exactly where it's from, and it's it's in a, like a rotation of game music that I have um, saved. That you know it's that good. So and supposedly <laughs> I've heard that it's one of his favorite recordings ever. That you know he he marks it down over, across all his other. Um, Final Fantasy work. This is the one he really, really enjoyed um, putting this stuff together because it was like hope and lust, etc. So, I mean, whether that's true or not, I don't know, but <laughs> that's what I've heard. Mm. And it, I think the uh, the motifs in a lot of those pieces play very well. I mean, it's it's very obvious that there's some real like sort of grief, like tears in the rain kind of pieces here, like little tinkly pianos and stuff that. You hear though some of those an awful lot, and there was a very amusing glitch that I had where I think I'd come out of one of the um, the thousand years of dreams, and it was you know the little sort of almost like visual novelly style music that plays over the top of one of those, um, and I went from that uh, into the boss fight at the end of the Numara section. It's the second time where you you end up beating um, the general in the tank. And for some reason, yeah. the music just didn't change. And I got stuck throughout <laughs> this long boss battle and two or three very long cutscenes with just the little like, tinkly piano playing in the background. It's like that completely changes the dynamic of this game. And like, I'll not forget how, how strange it was fighting that guy in the tank with like the sad piano music playing over the top of it on loop for a very long time. Um but it's also like the the boss music. I think there's a, a good few pieces of boss music for different locations, and um, at least one of them is a real earworm that I'm currently trying to not have in my head right at this very second. Uh, and there's some there's some interesting like I think the uh, optional boss in the um, in the backyard fighting area has like a very cool kind of rocky piece at the end of it, and there's a bit on the 
the final fight with Gongora, where it's again, it's very kind of, it's got that new metal touch where it almost has lyrics underneath it, but the lyrics kind of just sound like evil chanting or something. It's, it's, it gets dangerously close to being like a little bit rap rocky or something like that. Um, so for, for better or worse, I think it's, it's all pretty memorable. And, you know, it's, it's worth saying that I was literally, I did play the, the last few backyard fights and then the final boss this morning so you know it sh- it should be pretty fresh in my head, but I definitely think that I'm going to continue remembering these pieces beyond the usual like frame of time where you play something else and just get get your memory wiped by that instead. Yeah, I think for me, uh, I, f- I found a lot of the music inoffensive, but not necessarily that memorable. But the pieces that I did like, and it, I know not memorable or inoffensive can sound bit condemning of it but for the pieces like the background music to the uh, a thousand years of dreams visual novels for example i thought were really really well done um alongside it i couldn't recall any of them off the top of my head but i remember thinking that they all went well with the story that was being told in all those the one track i do really really like um is the map music and um, when you're traveling the downside is if you want to call this a downside, I mean, this is like removing the subway sections from the Spider-Man game when you play it on PS5 because you don't have time to load. Uh, on the series uh, consoles with the SSD, it doesn't really have the time to be able to start playing the music in full like it did on the Xbox mm. 360 when you use the map. Um, but that was a great piece of music that I really like. In fact, when we ran Sound of Player, uh, that track was one that I actually selected on one of, the, uh, one of those issues uh, several, several years ago now. Um, and that that is my favorite piece of music through the game. And I thought sound design wise, I, I really liked it. Uh, particularly going through kind of the menu in has that satisfying uh, sound as you go through. But particularly when you use the ring system, which is part of the combat system that we never really expanded on too much, um, which has an interaction where you hold the trigger and release it within a certain time and try and get a perfect mark, which can up your critical. It has like that loud whoosh sound and then the, the sort of that ringing sound if you get it right. That was satisfying throughout the entire time that I played that game. So for me, I thought the sound design was pretty spot on for what it was. Uh, The music, I thought, was really, really good as well. So super user from our forum said, Combat-wise, I came away disappointed uh, and I was put off from the genre. The first two discs were a slog requiring regular grinding sessions. You'll hit one or two damage points unless you put in the hours. I could only tolerate it because it's mindless and works with podcasts. Lining up the ring for more damage gives you something to do while you try to distract yourself from the tedium. However, you are forbidden from overleveling, which I can never make my mind up about. I also want to condemn the design of forcing a boss fight with nowhere to realistically grind. In two locations, you basically lose the rest of your party. You will have an incredibly frustrating time if you weren't leveling those characters before. A really damaging aspect is how you don't see the full genius of the combat system until the final disc, and in particular the superbly executed final boss. But it shouldn't take 30 hours to get there. I preferred the approach of Shin Megami Tensei 4, one of the few other RPGs I'd played, which immediately offers almost every system in the game. One final note, there are a lot of items in this game that can radically alter your fighting ability, Where you can find them is another matter, and the game doesn't ever give you a hint that they exist. I may have been spoiled by Pokemon where NPCs teach you the whole game in their weird dialogues, 
but discovering items felt opaque to the point that I underutilized them. There is also little room to experiment because of the game's linear structure. There's nothing stopping you from going back, but I only play around with items after I've exhausted my regular abilities and interactions with the enemies in an area. I can't put my finger on it, but I thought the way enhancements were positioned in the game made me less likely to use them. I am glad I went through Lost Odyssey. It was my second turn-based RPG after Shin Megami Tensei, if we exclude Pokemon. It also confirmed my suspicions about the genre. I can put up with them for an engrossing story and setting, but as far as turn-based RPGs go, I really just like the SMT system, which they oversimplify, uh, which they oversimplify for me in spin-offs like Persona. There wasn't a simple fix to those flaws, but it was a good adventure I would like more of. If anyone has suggestions for a beginner RPG, a player that likes fast battles, a good plot and minimal grinding, I'd be glad to hear them. So on to our three word reviews then. We'll start with Leah. Super user says gambling with chickens. Brendan Agnew for the ages. Ben Parry says store brand 13. I assume he means Final Fantasy 13. Not the Ubisoft first person. Probably not. <laughs> Uh, Winter 93 says, that intro transition. Sasha Holish says, 11th Final Fantasy. Jason D. Smith says, Final Fantasy 11. Patch Code Jesus, apologies for that, says, The Lost Odyssey. And your friend Marcus, Final Fantasy X box. So, in summary then, um, we'll start with Leah. I think that's fair. Yeah, I... I did not love Lost Odyssey, but I did like it. Um, I I think that I probably would have loved it if I had played it in 2008. But as we've kind of mentioned, there are just some things that don't, in my opinion, hold up to a first playthrough in, in current times, just kind of given everything that's happened since then. I don't think that there's anything wrong with Lost Odyssey, except for maybe Jansen, but... He, we've discussed that, so again, I won't go too deep on that. Um, it, it's just that there are design decisions that were made and some technical limitations that prevented it from doing some of the things that I would have liked to see. So I, if you have not played Lost Odyssey by this point, I, I don't know that I would recommend it. Um, Persona 4 also came out in 2008, I would like to say. <laughs> so um, there are other things is all I'm saying. Um not a fair comparison but uh, but still um yeah i i i just i just don't think that it necessarily holds up as as a first time experience right now there are definitely things that it does that i i i liked and i i think are effective and i i think that the writing is great uh and that it it, it is unique in some ways i don't think i've ever really seen another game jrpg or otherwise that does quite what it does with the thousand years of dreams thing so i mean whether you think that that's a great addition or whether you think that it needs work it is unique in my experience at least and there's something to be said for that for sure so yeah i i, I mean i i don't I don't like coming off of this and saying, eh, but that's kind of where I am. So uh, if you have the experience with Lost Odyssey in the past and you loved it, 
then I don't know, maybe maybe give it another playthrough. It's pretty easy to get a hold of these days, so um, that there is that. But I, I don't think that I would recommend going in for the first time. Um, not not right now. Just uh, know that it's there. Know that it's pretty decent, and um, I think that's that's where I land. For me, it's it's a strange one because I think when I originally requested this i expected to come off it and be a bit more positive on it than i am and and recommend it to everyone and i think there is an audience to recommend this game to i don't think it's one of those that i think everyone should avoid i think if you're one of an audience of people looking towards a more traditional jrpg experience as a lover of the Final Fantasy games, maybe, you know, Final Fantasy 1 through 9, um, maybe 10, um, then this may be the game that you're kind of looking for that you've not experienced. It does fit into those more traditional design philosophies than more modern ones have, particularly with kind of things like world traversal and, and, and maybe even party management. I think where I really do maybe struggle to recommend this now, in spite of things that I do like, I think the structure of the battle system, the learning system, um, I didn't even fully experience the ring system to that the full level of that capability, uh, are all really, really solid elements to the game. The, the, the story delivery, uh, the antagonist design, and structure and maybe even the character designs have been a little bit left behind and where i originally played this and was a fan i played this before other jrpg games many several of which you know were released after this and have kind of evolved the formula to the point that certain things are quite hard to go back to you know leah said it's an unfair comparison to something like persona 4 a lot of games are an unfair comparison <laughs> to Persona not just JRPGs. Like that is an epic shelf all-time classic game. I, I'm never going to recommend playing this over something like that. And I think you look at the way that combat structure in, in even relatively recent takes on it, things like uh, Yakuza Like a Dragon, for example, which kind of blends a, a more modern action game with traditional JRPG combat and turn-based combat. Things, things where you can automate your combat and be interactive with defending and stuff in situations, again, makes this feel a little bit aged in a way that this, and this isn't a timeless classic that can kind of get away with it. It was kind of the end of that traditional formula before everything else evolved it away, including the Final Fantasy series itself. So if if you are looking for that traditional game type, and that traditional JRPG type, look into Lost Odyssey. Things like the Thousand Years of Dreams are a really interesting take. If you're not interested, watch them through on YouTube. They are really good. Some of those stories are absolutely fantastic. But is it an all-time classic that you have to play as an exclusive on the Xbox? I just know. I think, especially now you've got the Persona games, uh, or at least a, a version of 3, 4, and 5 coming to Xbox. Uh, within 12 months of us recording this, I, I would say that that's a better bet. John? I'm a little bit split both ways on this. I I have some very fond memories of playing this. I think that the 
some of the motifs of the storyline or like the themes of the game along with the thousand years of dreams are things that work very very well for me i quite like that traditional jrpg structure because despite the fact that since i first messed about with this in 2014 and had very few jrpgs under my belt i i've now played a hell of a lot more in the in the eight years since then and i'm i'm still i guess i'm still in that point that i haven't really reached the saturation of them yet and i've i've mostly been hand picking out games that are supposed to have been pretty good with a few notable exceptions um enchanted arms looking at you here uh, but the like the overall kind of slightly lackluster characters and some of the extremely frustrating moving dungeons and things that you could genuinely probably get lost in and never be able to get back out there's a few things like that 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 kind of rub me up the wrong way but i mean as as a kind of a fair weather jrpg fan and somebody who does really like the the weird like management system like the managing and equipping all the skills and like trying to um trying to optimize your party in as as many ways as you physically can like they're things that that sit very well with me so i think i i don't know exactly where everybody listening to this is like mileage with these sorts of games are but i think if you're not not like otherwise completely burned out and also you know not just desperately trying to reach for the absolute best possible thing at all times like this is still something that's um even with its 14 year old age now more than 14 years i think it's it's still very respectable and it it probably probably holds up in my mind better than a lot of other things from the time period that this came out so i think it's definitely still worth looking into if you've got an interest in the genre particularly or you know really if you just want to hear some some like good uh matsu music it's it's very respectable in that as well so I think it's it's certainly got its place and it's certainly something that can still be played in this day and age with um you know very positive results as long as you're kind of mindful of some of the shortcomings of it. Excellent. Tony as always last you know you you end up with a combination of everybody's thoughts but you know somebody that that put 90 hours into this you know when it first came out there's you talk about the epic shelf like this has actually always sat on my epic shelf it's always been one of those pride of place games that there because i have such strong and interesting memories of the story in particular and most of that was based around the immortality of the characters sometimes it's hard to go back to games and and look at them in a, a new fresh modern light and go oh god some of this stuff is isn't quite what i thought it would be and you know unfortunately that that has happened with lost, lost odyssey is many of the elements that i did absolutely adore haven't necessarily stood up to you know 14 years uh, since and so that leaves a little bit of a sour taste in the mouth yet maybe i lean a bit more with john like i if you're going to put this amount of time into a game it's not you know i wouldn't have uh, i wouldn't sink 90 hours into a game if i didn't like it and i wouldn't have gone back and played big chunks of it now if it wasn't something that was was entertaining and I've never necessarily 100% glued with the kind of more modern kind of real-time combat in um, in JRPGs. I'm I'm actually quite a traditionist. I do like turn-based contact, uh, combat because it gives me time to kind of analyse and think. And I think one of the reasons why necessarily hadn't, I personally hadn't put Lost Odyssey up for discussion prior to this is because I was always 
a bit unsure, like, how oh, could you fit the conversation of Lossosity into a two-hour podcast? And I think proven today, you know, the fact that we're running a bit long is actually there's many elements to this game that you could talk more on. You know, we talked a lot about the story, but equally, I don't think we've done 100% justice to some of the the gameplay mechanics, which I do think actually 14 years down the line do hold up really well. Yeah, I do like the ring system. I do like the way that you, you can have guards in your party and, you know, take the damage at the front that that, in, that protect the people at the back you know there's many elements of this game that we haven't got to which i think still actually do you know stand up to, to the test of time and yeah I, overall i you know it's it's been a kind of bittersweet going back to lost odyssey for me because yes for me it really was an epic self content and now it probably yeah drops down towards that if do you play this now over a bunch of other titles that have come out since or before <sighs> Yeah, it's it's always hard to recommend if you don't have that kind of clickiness for a game like this because it's ultimately you're going to be putting huge amounts of time and effort into it. So I'm not sure what any other person's mileage will vary on it. But for me, I'm glad I, I went back and kind of saw how the game held up. And it's that to me, is just a mixed bag. Some stuff has held up really well. Some stuff has aged incredibly poorly. Um and so that leaves me kind of like, oh, well, you know, it <laughs> maybe it is exactly what I thought it maybe it would be in the end, which was a, a somewhat of a, a mixed bag. But some of the elements of it does is brilliant. Some of the elements it does you know, isn't great. So, yeah, make of that wish you will, which is a real rambling mess at the end, I guess. <laughs> Excellent. Brilliant. So with that, that just leads me to thank uh, John, Leah, Tony. You've all been brilliant. Our legendary editor, Jay all the correspondents who sent in feedback for this episode, and, of course, the audience, you yourself, for listening. Thank you so much. Next time, in issue 544, we take control of Samus Aran once more in the 2002 Game Boy Advance title, Metroid Fusion. (laughs) 